morning, folks. Hey, I'm really excited to introduce us to our fall sermon series uh, on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, the subtitle is Training Yourself uh, to Be Spiritually Fit. Training Yourself to Be Spiritually Fit. Now, the subtitle from our sermon series comes from the passage that Jay just read. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And there, uh, Paul tells us, God tells us through Paul, that we are to train ourselves to be godly, that we are to discipline or train ourselves unto godliness. Now, this, this Greek word that we see here is uh, it's pretty interesting. It's a word train or discipline, and it comes from a Greek word, uh, gymnadze, which is where we get our word gymnasium. Uh, it's actually described uh, bodily exercise and training that would happen at the Olympic Games. Yes, they had Olympic Games all the way back in Paul's time. And so Paul uses this Olympic imagery of these world-class athletes that would discipline themselves, that would train and work hard to win the prize. And he says, this is what our spiritual life is to be like. We, we understand this image from the Olympics. How many of you watched some of the Summer Olympic Games? Probably most of you watched some of it. Some of you maybe watched a whole lot of it, right? Many, many hours. Uh, watching these athletes that trained every day, hour after hour, month after month, for four entire years to get their shot on the Olympic stage, right? They trained themselves to do what they could do. Now, what Paul is saying here, I think, is, is very clear. He's saying that godliness, to become like Jesus Christ, takes effort. It takes dedication. It takes time. It's not just something that happens. If you take a look at verse 8 in your Bible, he says that physical training does have some benefit in value. So those of you guys who like to exercise and train your bodies, good for you. The Bible says you should do that, right? It commends that. But he says uh, uh, physical training has some benefit, but he goes on to say that spiritual training has more benefit. He said it yields results both in the present life, it makes us more like Jesus Christ in our attitudes and in our actions, and he says it even has results into eternity. I find it really interesting that Paul compares the spiritual life to the physical life with spiritual exercise to to physical exercise. And he says spiritual discipline is far more beneficial for the Christian. So I kind of wonder if we really believe that as followers of Christ. I wonder how much time the average Christian in America gives to working out their bodies versus working out their souls. In a book entitled Transformational Discipleship, uh, an author by the name of Geiger describes what he calls in America a discipleship deficiency. They did a poll of about 3,000 evangelical Christians, and uh, out, of the, out of these 3,000, uh, a little under half prayed uh, at all during the day, at all, even a one-minute popcorn prayer. Only half of of these 3,000 Christians prayed at all during any course of the day. And not only that, less than 20% read their Bible at all during any course of their day. No wonder, he says, that America has a discipleship deficiency. Now, in contrast to these statistics, if you take a look at verse 10, Paul says that he and his apostolic band of brothers, notice the language, they labor and strive. Paul says they labor and strive to be godly. Friends, I wonder if we asked ourselves and looked at our own spiritual lives, could we say the same thing about our effort to become more like Jesus Christ? Do we labor and strive at it? 
See, what's clear from this text is that as Christians, we are to be in training. If you want to physically train your body, great, go for it. But spiritual training for the Christian, it's not optional. It's something that we are to be doing. But here's the question that will be before us for the next several weeks. What are the exercises that God has given us to train ourselves to be godly? Are there exercises, are there disciplines, are there processes, are there practices that God has said in Scripture and throughout church history, these are my avenues of grace, and if you participate in them and cooperate with my Spirit, you can grow in godliness. You can train to be more like Jesus Christ. That's what our series this fall will be about, examining nine spiritual disciplines and seeing how God can use them to help train us to be like Jesus Christ. Uh, Dan, why don't you come and pray for us? Dan, one of our elders, is going to come. He's going to pray for us, for this sermon and for the sermon series, and we'll continue on in worship. Right there. Okay, if you join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible, for your written word that you uh, guide and direct us uh, in your word uh, through what we can read. Uh, Father, you've outlined some uh, spiritual disciplines for us, and we are thankful that Trey is going to share those with us, and we can learn from those uh, over the weeks to come. Father, right now we just uh, praise you uh, for your your grace to us. Uh, we thank you that Lori Wilson is doing better. Lord, we pray for a complete healing of her body, that she would be able to... Uh, to praise you through her healing, Lord. Uh, we pray for all the babies uh, recently, for those that are still to come, there will be many, many more. And Father, we, we do lift up a little preemie. Uh, we just pray that you would uh, let her grow into herself and, uh, and be with her and the doctors caring. Uh, we thank you that Kim's surgery was successful and that she's with us today and doing well. Father, we lift up the uh, family that was at the clothing pantry yesterday that is in need. Father, move us to do uh, what we are called to do to care for those around us that are in need. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this glorious day, for the upcoming harvest, and for the uh, certain knowledge that we will see you in the end. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing this morning as we focus on the holiness of God. God himself is holy, and he calls his people to be holy as well. So let's sing of his holiness. Oh, well, howdy, folks. Howdy, folks. Thank you. I did grow up in Texas, in case you didn't know. Hey, really glad you guys are with us, and uh, again, very excited to begin uh, this introductory sermon on the spiritual discipline. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, we are going to introduce the subject of the spiritual disciplines, asking and answering six questions. So if you're jotting down notes, one, two, three, four, five, six questions, we're going to be in a whole host of of scriptures. So if you want to have your Bibles open, you can flip around mostly in the New Testament. Uh, you can follow us on the screen behind me as well. An introduction to the spiritual discipline. Six questions. Number one, who are they for? Who are the spiritual disciplines for? Number two, why do we need them? Question number three, um, how do the spiritual disciplines work? What does it look like? How does God transform us through them? Number four, why do we practice them? That is, what is our motivation? Number five, what are their dangers? I think there are at least three dangers inherent in them. And number six, what are they? What are the spiritual disciplines that we will be looking at for the next several weeks? 
Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we pray for your help and grace as we examine your word to see these life-giving habits that you have outlined in the scriptures for us, for those of us who have trusted in Christ and come to know you through faith in him. We've had our sins forgiven, uh, washed away, uh, thrown as far as the east is from the west, and we are so very grateful. But Father, your saving grace doesn't stop when you declare us righteous. No, your grace invades our hearts and our lives, and, and you aim to make us righteous on a pr- very practical level uh, in our marriages, with our children, at work, with our friends. As we battle sin and live in this world, you want us to become like you. And you have given us practices to do so. So, Father, I pray your blessings upon this sermon this morning and upon the next few weeks as we examine these disciplines. Father, may we see that they are life-giving and transformative as we pursue them through your grace. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first question that I want to tackle as we begin to look at the spiritual disciplines is, who are they for? Who are the spiritual disciplines for? And we have to begin here because the moment I began talking about spiritual disciplines, some of you may turn me off immediately. You may have already clicked me off and said, those are for spiritual giants. Those are for pastors and youth pastors. Sorry, Justin, you're not off the hook. Those are for, uh, you know, those who have time, hours upon end to spend uh, with God. That's not for me. Who are the spiritual disciplines for? I think the biblical answer is very simple. Spiritual disciplines are for every Christian. For every Christian. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Peter, or you can follow me on the screen behind me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Peter tells the church this. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now that sounds like being godly, right? If we want to to be that way, if we want to become people that aren't malicious or deceitful, hypocritical or envious, right? We want want to grow in that way. Well, how do we do that? In verse 2, Peter says, like newborn babies, we've just talked about newborn babies, right? It's fresh on our minds. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here's what Peter is saying in short. He's saying, if you want to become more like Jesus, rid yourself of these things. Here's how you're going to do it. You need to become like a newborn baby. You need to crave milk, but not uh, mother's milk or, or milk from a bottle. No, the milk that we crave is the milk of the Word. The milk of God's inspired word. And why do we crave it? What, what does a regular intake of the spiritual food do for us? Well, he says, so that by it we may grow up in our salvation. That is, we might become progressively like Jesus. We might progressively um, have power, be delivered over sin's power in our life. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let me ask you this. If you, as a Christian, have tasted that the Lord is good, if you have tasted His salvation in your life, you are then to crave pure spiritual milk, right? You taste and you see that the Lord is good, and you want more of Him. So you crave spiritual milk, and by craving spiritual milk, you grow up into your salvation. 
I think what Peter shows us is that the spiritual disciplines are not for Christian giants, not for pastors or theologians or seminarians, although they are for them. They are for the everyday Christian. Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, you will hear me quote him often over the next several weeks, Foster says this, We must not be led to believe that the spiritual disciplines are only for spiritual giants, and hence beyond our reach, or only for contemplatives who devote all their time to prayer and meditation. Far from it, he says. God intends the disciplines to be the, uh, the disciplines of the spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings, people who have jobs, people who care for children, who wash dishes and mow the lawns. I don't know about you, but you might be in that category, right? The spiritual disciplines are for everyone. So friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, whether newly reborn or you have been a Christian for 60 years, the spiritual disciplines are for you. They're for all. So we've seen who the disciplines are for. Let's move on to our second question. Why do we need them? Why do we need to participate in spiritual exercises? Well, quite simply, the reason why we need the spiritual disciplines as Christians is because of sin. Now, notice I didn't say sins plural, but sin singular, as in the power or the principle of sin that lives inside of me and you. See, it's sin as a power within our sinful nature that leads us to need God's divinely given avenues of sin-conquering grace. Paul clearly speaks of the power of sin in our life as Christians in Romans chapter 7. If you want to flip there, you can, or follow on the screen behind me. There in Romans chapter 7, Paul gives us what is a, a first-hand account, a testimony, I believe, of his Christian life trying to be lived out of his own willpower, trying to conquer sin simply by doing good, by doing the right thing, by gritting his teeth and doing it. Now notice what he says, just a portion of this section, starting in verse 14. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to what? Sin. Singular, right? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is what? Sin living inside of me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Friends, if you have been a Christian for five minutes then you resonate with what Paul is saying, right? We resonate with this. We have been there as Christians. We know what is right, and we want to do what is right. But as we pursue sometimes doing what is right, we just find that we can't do it. There's this battle inside of us. We desire to do good, but somehow we lack the power. There's this principle inside of us. It's the principle of indwelling sin, Paul says. And friends, that's why we need the spiritual disciplines. Again, Foster writes this, Our ordinary method of dealing with ingrained sin is to launch a frontal attack. That's what Paul was doing here in these verses. He takes it head on. 
He says this, We rely on our own willpower and determination. We determine never to do it again. We pray against it, fight against it, and set our will against it. But the struggle is all in vain. And we find ourselves once again morally bankrupt. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there. Willpower, he says, will never succeed in dealing with the deeply ingrained habits of sin. Sooner or later, there will come that unguarded moment when the careless word will slip out to reveal the true condition of the heart. See, we have no intention of exploding with anger or of parading a sticky arrogance, he writes, but when we are with people, what we are comes out. Have you ever been there before, friends? I'm sure you have. C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis, talks about it this way, and he illustrates it this way. He says, Surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Now notice the illustration. If there are rats in the cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. Now he brings it home. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. Friends, are there rats running around in your spiritual cellar that occasionally in an unguarded moment just happen to show up? I don't know about you, but there are in my life. See, there is this power inside of us, the power of sin. And we need the grace of God to help us overcome them and to be transformed from the inside out. We need the disciplines to change us internally so that what comes out of us in those unguarded moments is a spirit-transformed response. So, who are they for? But for me and they're for you. Why do we need them? Because there's this principle and power of sin within us. There are rats running around in our spiritual cellar. So how do they work? Question number three. How then do the spiritual disciplines help us kill the rats inside of our spiritual cellars? How does that work? Well, I want to answer that question really in two parts. First, generally, and then second, more specifically. First of all, how does the Bible speak about spiritual change? In other words, how do we grow to be like Jesus Christ in our Christian walk? What is, how does change happen, generally speaking? And then the second question is, well, how do the disciplines interact with that? First of all, um, how, how, how does the Bible talk about change? Well, we quickly come to the point in the Christian life that we realize that Jesus' words in John 15 are true. He says, apart from me, you can do some things. Is that what he says? Shake your heads, no. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And if you've lived the Christian life a while, you realize that that is so true, right? We need an inside job. We need God to transform us from the inside out. We need divine enablement. However, if God does the changing, it doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in our inner transformation because we do. So here's... Here's how I would describe change in the Bible. Transformation is the work of God 
First and foremost, transformation is the work of God through and through. It's His power. Transformation is the work of God requiring our cooperation. So biblically speaking, God changes us, but we cooperate in the process. We must cooperate with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, placing ourselves in the pathways of His transforming grace. We must take what one author calls, I love this, grace-empowered effort and initiative. We need actions of grace-empowered effort. That is, we have to do something, right? And initiative. We need to initiate something, but it's grace-empowered, right? This interplay between God's power to, to, to transform us and change us and our cooperating with that, I think, is most clear in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. In verse 12, we see that we have to do something. There is human cooperation if we are going to become like Jesus. In verse 13, we see that it's God-empowered, that God does the changing. Take a look at verse 12 first. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let me ask you, church, is there something that we have to do? Shake your heads, yes. There is something that we have to do, namely, working out our salvation, pursuing obedience. But notice verse 13. For, here's why we can do this, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Notice the juxtaposition between God's power to change us and our cooperation with it. In verse 12, on the one hand, we see that Christians are to continue to work out the implications of our salvation by pursuing obedience to the word. You could say it this way. A grace that saves us is a grace that sanctifies us. You could say it this way. The grace that forgives our sins is the grace that frees us from sin. So on the one hand of verse 12, we have to do something. But on the other hand, verse 13 tells us that God is actually the one doing the inside job to cause us, number one, both to desire to obey him, and number two, enabling us to actually obey him. So transformation is the work of God but it requires our cooperation. We see this throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple other examples. The first is in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, does that mean Paul did nothing to become godly? Does that mean he had no role in, it, in any of it? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder. I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Don't we see both and? God changes us, but we work hard. Colossians chapter 1, very similar, verse 29. To this end, Paul says, to this end I strenuously contend. Does that sound like a lazy Christian to you? He strenuously contends with all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. So Christ enabled Paul to contend and to work hard. So generally speaking, generally speaking, 
Transformation is a work of God that requires our cooperation. So the second question then becomes, how do the spiritual disciplines fit in, right? How do they fit into this equation? Well, the spiritual exercises place us along a pathway of God's changing grace. They they put us in a place to receive God's power, to cooperate with his spirit living inside of us. See, they are ways that we work out our salvation. They are ways, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we work hard. They are the ways that we strenuously contend, Colossians 1. See, what the spiritual disciplines do is they give God access to our minds, to our wills, to our emotions, and even to our bodies, so that he, as the master potter, can shape us, the clay, into the vessel that looks like him, progressively, progressively, and over time. I've heard of a couple illustrations to maybe uh, flesh this out. One good example is, is that of a light switch, right? That of a light switch. When we go to turn on the power, we ourselves don't necessarily provide the power. We don't provide the electricity, but we have access to it, right? We have access to it. We have to do something to access that, that power. And, of course, we, we flip the, the, the light switch, right? Kind of like uh, the, a water faucet. Very similarly, kind of a simple illustration. We don't make the water flow, so to speak, but we have access to it. We turn the knob to access it. Similarly, God is the one providing transformative grace. He controls the supply. He changes us. But he has revealed circuits, if you will, that we should connect to. Pipes, if you will, that we should open, in which his grace regularly flows. And these are the spiritual disciplines. So that what happens when we place ourselves in the place where his grace is moving in our life, he has access to our mind, to our wills, to our bodies, to our emotions, what happens is that we slowly but surely begin to change. Our inner man becomes changed, right? Inner transformation happens. So that what happens in those unguarded moments, what comes out of us in those provocations are the fruits of the Holy Spirit rather than the deeds of our flesh. Foster again says this is the result. Divine love, he says, has then slipped into our inner spirit and has taken over our habit patterns. We do not have to work at being good and kind. We, in that moment, are good and kind. So, Who are the disciplines for? For me and you. Why do we need them? Because of the power of sin. How do they work? They change us. God changes us as we cooperate through him, through the disciplines. Number four. Let's ask a question of motivation. What what motivates us to participate in the spiritual disciplines? Why should we practice them? Maybe another way to ask it is, what, what are the goals that we have in mind? when we sit down and open our Bible, or when we kneel down by our bed to pray, or when we take communion on a Sunday morning, or when we have fellowship with other Christians. What what are our goals in this? There are two goals. One of them is the ultimate goal, and the other is the pin ultimate goal. One of them is primary. The second comes just before. Let's begin with the first. It's being like Jesus. When we participate in the spiritual disciplines, the penultimate goal, the next to last goal, 
is that we would become like Jesus in our thinking, in our actions, and in our attitudes, right? That's why we pursue them, because we want to be like our Savior. It's progressive victory over sin and temptation, and it's progressive growth in virtue and in godliness. We see this in a ton of places. I'll quote one really, pa- uh, really fast. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Notice, what happens when we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator? So when we grow in God's grace, we become more and more like the image of our creator, Jesus Christ. Another author on the disciplines by the name of Mathis He's written a wonderful little book called Habits of Grace. And he says this. He says, Grace sanctifies. It is too wild to let us stay in love with unrighteousness. Too free to leave us in slavery to sin. Too untamed to let our lusts go unconquered. Grace's power is too uninhibited to not unleash us for the happiness of true holiness. So when we pursue the disciplines, we do so pin ultimately because we want to be like Jesus. But what's our ultimate goal? What's our ultimate aim? Well, yes, it is being like Jesus, but ultimately it is knowing Jesus because Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with Father God through faith in Jesus Christ, through the mediation of the Holy Spirit. We want to know Jesus. The secondary goal is being like Jesus. The primary goal is knowing Jesus, right? Paul echoes this great desire in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So we pursue the disciplines because we want to be transformed But the avenue of us becoming transformed is actually pursuing the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Mathis hits it on the head. He says, we need to make clear what is the greatest grace along these paths. Jesus himself. He says, the great end of the means is knowing and enjoying him. Spiritual growth is a marvelous effect of such practices. But in a sense, it is only a side effect. The heart is knowing and enjoying Jesus. And here's the deal. If we pursue the disciplines without the ultimate aim of knowing and enjoying Jesus, then we might fall into some of the dangers that come alongside the spiritual disciplines. Question number five, what are those dangers? Well, I I see three. Maybe there are more. But I see three dangers in my own life, in my own experience, and in Scripture that I think often come along with spiritual disciplines. The first one I will call legalism. Legalism. See, it's, it's very easy for us as Christians when we pursue the spiritual, discipline, the spiritual disciplines to turn what are meant to be life-giving exercises into life-sucking laws. How easily we can confuse the practice itself with spiritual growth. Thinking if we just do certain things, Right? If we just do certain things, God's going to change us. We trust in the discipline to change us rather than trusting in God to change us. Right? 
And so it's so easy to say, had my quiet time, prayed for a while, went to church, did all of the things that are good, avenues of God's grace. But if we pursue them legalistically, just if I do it, God will change me. Friends, we deceive ourselves. Foster again says it this way, law-bound disciplines breathe death. Have you ever been there, believer? Man, I know I have. Law-bound disciplines breathe death. It is easy in our zeal, he says, for the spiritual disciplines to turn them into the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We don't want to be like that. So the first danger is pursuing these disciplines legalistically. The second danger is pride. And these are all related. I think you can see that. Pride. It's very easy to be puffed up in our participation in the disciplines, especially if we make progress in them, right? So we say to ourselves, self, you had your quiet time today. You are a spiritual guy. Or I read five whole chapters this morning. Pat on the back. I prayed for 30 minutes. That's five more minutes than yesterday. Pat on the back. I went to church every week this month. I'm a great Christian. And in our participation of things that are meant to give life and access to God, we become proud in our practice of these things. And often along with pride comes comparison. And this is when it gets very ugly. As we compare our habits with other people's habits, and we want to make ourselves look better than our brother or sister in Christ. We think ourselves more spiritual. We look at our brother or our sister, and we see, man, they have, a, they have the daily bread, and it's just like a, one paragraph, and that's all the Bible they get. I read all of Leviticus this morning. I am a better Christian than you. And our legalism turns into pride, and it turns into comparison third danger that I see is that of manipulation. Manipulation, thinking that in participating in the disciplines that somehow we can twist God's arm to get him to do what we want, especially in our evangelical culture in America where the prosperity gospel is so prevalent uh, and we turn on the TV and all we hear are guys like, uh, well, guys and gals and they're telling us things like this. And so we then approach the spiritual disciplines and we say, God, I had my quiet time this morning. I better have a good day today, right? God, I, uh, I gave uh, a 10% of uh, my income this month, so I expect uh, a raise here shortly, right? Manipulating God. Mathis again says, This much must be clear from the outset. The grace of God is gloriously beyond our skill and technique. The means of grace are not about earning God's favor, twisting His arm, or controlling His blessings but readying ourselves for consistent saturation in the rolls of his tide, right? So these are dangers that we must keep in mind as we learn about the spiritual disciplines and as we begin to practice them. So let's close with one final question. And maybe we could have started here, but I decided to end with it. We've said quite a bit about spiritual uh, uh, disciplines and exercises. What are they? Like, what are we talking about here, right? Um, So what are the spiritual disciplines? Well, uh, the Bible, thankfully, doesn't have a a whole list that we have to participate in per se. It's not like there's a book in the New Testament of spiritual disciplines where God says you must do X, Y, Z, and A, B, C, and 1, 2, 3, and here's exactly how you do them. We don't don't have that per se. But what we do see are uh, examples in the scriptures of people doing 
spiritual disciplines, we do have some commands that we exercise spiritual disciplines. So examples and commands from the scripture and throughout history, 2,000 plus years of church history, we get a pretty good idea. What are these avenues of grace that God has given the church so that we can be transformed into his image? I will be looking at nine of them. Nine of them, they'll be on the screen behind me. But I want to begin by thinking about categorization. How do we categorize them? Uh, If we can take a look at the next slide. Uh, The one author by the name of Mathis categorizes them in three ways. He has kind of three broad categories to help us think about the spiritual disciplines. The first has to do with God's word. He calls it hearing God's voice. So two or three disciplines for hearing God's voice. We will look at the Bible, Bible reading, Bible study, Bible application. We will look at the uh, ancient Christian art of meditation and scripture memorization. So in these disciplines, we learn to hear God's voice. What about the next set? Not only do we want to hear God's voice, but we want to have his ear. That is, these disciplines relate to prayer. So we'll look at prayer, both public prayer, corporate prayer. We'll look at the, uh, the art of journaling. We'll explore fasting, which is certainly related to prayer. And then we'll look at uh, three uh, related disciplines, silence, solitude, and rest. All of these things enable us to have God's ear in prayer, if you will. The final category has to do with, uh, with fellowship, with being a part of a local church. He calls it belonging to God's body. There are disciplines that we pursue corporately together, four of them. Number one, just generally speaking, is fellowship. We'll talk about some specific things there. Number two is the ordinances. Baptism, which is, we have one coming up, we're excited about, and communion. Number eight, simplicity and sharing. Living a simple, li- a simple life and being generous. And number nine, living on mission. Going together as a church for the sake of Jesus Christ. These are the nine spiritual disciplines that we will be looking at over the next several weeks. So here's the deal. Some of you are old pros at this. Some of you have been participating in these spiritual disciplines for years and years, and you know how to read your Bible, and you know how to study it and apply it, and it's just like, it's like old hat for you, right? You're so familiar with it. And some of you, some of us have no familiarity with these, either in theory or in practice. So my hope My prayer is that we will have a little bit of something for everyone. If you're a baby Christian or you've been a Christian in a while, but you've not been exposed to these things, I hope to help uh, introduce you to practices that God uses to transform us. But if you have, you have done these things for years and years. Maybe you'll get a, a tip, right, a pointer, some new angle that you haven't considered to help you in your pursuit of Jesus Christ along the pathway of spiritual disciplines. I'm really excited about this series. It's going to be great. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to close uh, in a way that is a little bit unusual. We're going to read a scripture together. I'm going to ask all of us to stand. So let's stand as we prepare to close. We're going to read a scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. We're going to read it together as a, a benediction over this sermon series. So, are we ready? Let's read together. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Friends, let's run in such a way to get the prize. See you next week.